Thank you, and welcome to the American Theatre Wing's seminar on working in the theatre. The seminar is coming to you from the Graduate Center at the City New University of New York. This particular seminar is a very rare and unusual one for the Wing to give. It is the award on design, that is the costumes, the sets, the lighting that go into making a theatre alive and it is a once-a-year award, once known as the Meharam Award. A man named Joseph Meharam established this award and it came under the Wings umbrella, and we are indeed proud to be able to present it. I'd like to turn this seminar over to Dr. Tish Dates, who is theater critic for the International Playwrights of London and chair of this award. And afterwards, you will be hearing from Jean Dalrymple, who is a member of the board of the American Theatre Wing, and Henry Hughes, who is also a member of the board of the American Theatre Wing. The moment is Dr. Dace. Thank you so much, Mrs. Stevenson. It's a, a great pleasure to be here to present these awards. The American Theatre Wing Design Awards Committee has nominated 36 scenic, costume, lighting, and other designers for outstanding artistry in 27 different productions uh, presented in New York during the 1986-1987 season. Unlike the Tonys, these annual awards, now in their 23rd year, embrace off and off-off-Broadway as well as Broadway. The winners receive uh, a small uh, financial honorarium, as well as a scroll. The nominees were decided and the winners were chosen uh, by an award committee uh, consisting of Henry Hughes for many, many years, the theater critic for the Saturday Review, and for many years the president of the American Theater uh, Critics Association. We're very pleased that Henry could be here today. Uh, he is with us. He was uh, one of the people who started these awards and for a long time was the chair of the awards committee. Uh, and second, uh, Edward F. Cook, uh, who is a, a significant Broadway lighting designer. Uh, he founded and was the president of Century Lighting for many years and he is now a lighting consultant. Patricia Mackay, the publisher and editor of Theater Crafts and Lighting Dimensions magazines. And Julius Novick, uh, theater critic for The Village Voice and, and myself. The awards will be presented uh, by Mrs. Stevenson on behalf of the American Theatre Wing. Um, we presented awards in four categories this year. Um, there are two winners in the scene design category. I think that the judges became mesmerized by dirt this year. Uh, that is to say soil. Uh, mud, sand, that sort of thing, for, by a very odd coincidence, uh, two designs which are extremely different from each other, as you will see and hear in a few minutes, uh, both employed uh, uh, dirt in their design. Uh, the, the first uh, scene design award goes to Robert Israel for The Hunger Artist, based on several works by Kafka, uh, and accepting for Robert Israel is um, Anthony Holland. Robert Israel uh, is uh, unfortunately working in California right now. Anthony Holland, who appeared in The Hunger Artist. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you very, very much for coming. The other scene design award goes to a very realistic set and a very realistic play by August Wilson Fences, James D. Sanderfer. There is one award in the costume design category, and it goes to John Napier for Starlight Express. Unfortunately, Mr. Napier is in London working on a film, but we are, are pleased to have with us today, accepting for him his design associate on Starlight Express, Ann Emmons. Congratulations. There are two awards in the lighting design category. Uh, first, 
Paul Gallo, again for the hunger artist, and again accepting is Anthony Holland. Thank you. Yeah. I know. You're going to be late. <laughs> I, I hope they take me out for a drink. <laughs> and the second lighting design award goes uh, to the designer of Worstward Ho, the Samuel Beckett uh, prose piece, which was presented as a theatrical monologue, and the, the lighting designer for that show is Jennifer Tipton. Uh, unfortunately, Jennifer Tipton is also working hard. She just got back from working on, on a show uh, in, in Europe and is now just putting the finishing touches on a show that Joanne Acolytus is directing in Minneapolis, which is about to open in a couple of days. But accepting for Jennifer Tipton is Mary Louise Geiger, who was the assistant lighting designer on the show. And finally, we have a category this year called Noteworthy Unusual Effects, uh, various kinds of special effects, uh, effects that didn't quite fall under any of the other categories, and the judges have chosen Tom Cam and Robert Wilson for the trees in the Civil Wars Act Five at the Brooklyn Academy of Music. Um, Tom Cam has got a show opening, I think, tomorrow night in Washington, and Robert Wilson has just had to leave for Hamburg, uh, where a show of his is about to open. But we are very fortunate to have the production manager at the Brooklyn Academy of Music, who worked with them on achieving this effect, accepting the award, Paul King. Now we're going to turn the panel over to Tish and to Jean and Henry, who will discuss with these talented young people what it is they had to bring to the theater to make it come alive and what it is they are still bringing to the theater. We thought it would be helpful um, if those of you who were not fortunate enough to see all these shows could see some visuals to begin with and hear a very brief explanation from each of the designers or the designer's representative as to what the show actually looked like uh, in the theater. I believe we're going to use that easel over there to present the visuals and uh, could I uh, perhaps um, call on uh, arbitrarily Ann Emmons to, uh, to begin with some visuals to represent uh, John Napier's costume design for Starlight Express. I have with me some uh, photographs of John's sketches. Uh, it's a shame that we're working with photographs rather than the original sketches, which are really an 11 by 17 format. Uh, conceptually, the show, as you know, is a child's dream or fantasy of his train set coming to life. So the costumes themselves then, of course, have to embody different train cars or engines uh, becoming human and uh, within that we have basically the show being a race between three different types of railroad cars which would be steam, electric and diesel. So the photographs we're looking at now are of Greaseball who's the diesel engine sort of the big macho villain of the show and uh, Electra who's the electrical uh, train car and uh, I don't know if we can fit three on here together. Let's see. Uh, and this is Rusty, who is a coal car or a steam engine. And um, really, a main objective is to capture a personality and a type in these costumes, as well as make them uh, able to be moved in easily and to uh, I mean, they're worn by skaters in the show. You know, for those of you who don't, for those of you who don't know, the show happens on roller skates. So that's a particular uh, design uh, hurdle to overcome in itself. But uh, as the show was done in London originally, uh, we adapted or developed the costumes even further uh, in New York to a sleeker, more uh, high-tech version of the railroad cars and uh, 
So as I said, we have the, the, the basic principles of the show here. Well, let's see if we can move on to... So we have the engines, which were all played by actors. And here are three of the female principles in the show, the female railroad cars. Uh, we have Belle, who's the sleeping car. Uh, sort of the hooker with a heart of gold is essentially what uh, her character is about. And uh, she's a car that sort of dilapidated and broken down and so our design concept there was a sort of old Victorian uh, very uh, uh, decorative and uh, uh, decorative and seedy at the same time uh, sort of like an, an old bordello that's really gone to uh, gone to seed. Uh, then we have Dinah who uh, is the diner car who uh, sort of embodies a kind of uh, 50s country western uh, concept. Again, within the show itself, musically, there are a lot of different types of songs. There are, uh, uh, the song that Dinah sings is a kind of Tammy Wynette uh, country western ballad. Uh, and so she, design-wise, has certain elements that, uh, that put forth that type of character, even a very uh, perky blonde wig and uh, that sort of thing. And then Ashley is the smoking car. She, um, again, is inspired by an older sort of period type of car with a lot of wood paneling, a lot of uh, uh, tufted velvet seating, and that sort of thing. Uh, the costumes employed a lot of different techniques. Also, a lot of the, the, the work that takes place on, on the tights and the body suits, there was a lot of hand painting and a lot of uh, applique work to, uh, uh, to get a more of a railroad uh, concept that also worked to allow them to be able to do the movement. Uh, okay, let's do three more. And uh, here are two of the uh, international engines, as we call them, which was the opening number of the show, which uh, there was a train from um, principal countries in Europe. So we have the Japanese train, the French train. And they had on their bodies, besides a, a, um, uh, a sleek body suit that had uh, texture added, through uh, a lot of quilting and foam. They had what we called armor. In a sense, they, uh, uh, I mean, actually one of, the, one of the original ideas that John came up with, there's a particular type of child's toy called a go-butt, which transform, or transformers, where they, they go from being uh, uh, sort of futuristic cars and then they, they sort of transpose or transform themselves into robots. So a lot of the engines had a bit of that quality too. And uh, even as you look at the, the Japanese engine, there are certain elements of almost a kind of samurai armor uh, concept there. And the French engine, you know, although it's not the actual color of what the, uh, the French train is in France, the high-speed train, it still embodies the, the sleekness. It's a French blue in color. So there's a lot of... Uh, uh, a lot of elements to, uh, uh, in combination to put forth uh, a, uh, a look for each particular country. This, this sketch um, is for Dustin, who's the coal car. He's kind of the, uh, the big friendly uh, character who uh, befriends Rusty and helps him in, uh, in the race against the coal car and the electric uh, car. Uh, the diesel car and the electric car. And, and I brought this sketch because it was really one of John's favorites and he al always uh, mentioned that uh, because it uh, uh, really embodies a very sort of likable human characteristics and uh, uh, was very successful and very liked by the children in the audience in London and that, that proved to be true in New York as well. And uh, I think one of the things that we always 
talked about in terms of the starlight costumes was that it was really very much a children's uh, fantasy. Um, and I think that's, that's important uh, when, when you go to see the show, is that it uh, incorporates so much of the technology that's possible in this country so that almost we had a, 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 an incredible, almost Disneyland-like fantasy on Broadway. So that about takes care of it. <laughs> It would be wonderful if you gave that little talk as a prologue before each uh, performance. <laughs> what a wonderful <laughs> idea. It had, it had so much to, uh, I mean, I didn't get all of that from just looking at the costumes. Right. Uh, thank you very much, Anne. And next, Mary Louise Geiger, uh, could you show us the visuals for uh, Samuel Beckett's Worstward Ho um, as lit by Jennifer Tipton? I have two pictures here, and it's a little bit difficult to get an idea of the production from them. The production, it's a long stream of consciousness Beckett monologue, and these, these other figures appear and disappear within his mind as he's talking. So Jennifer's concept of the light was to make um, the images appear sometimes when he mentions them, sometimes not when he mentions them, and for the light to, the dynamic of the light to be as subliminal as possible. And the show was extremely dim and extremely difficult to photograph. So this sh picture shows kind of the whole stage with these two figures that were upstage, lit brightly, and the cave that was beyond, that was sometimes there and sometimes not. And then there was another figure here, a half figure, and sometimes you saw the whole body, sometimes just the head and sometimes it not, and then this skeleton here became more and more important. And then Fred Newman, who was the actor performing the monologue, um, the way he looked also changed. And let's see, um, there were also scrims up above up here, and from time to time, Fred would talk about the skull or eyes and things like that, and these eyes would appear and disappear, and the entire space became a skull at one point. And the whole point for Jennifer of the light is that Fred mentions these images sometimes right after another and sometimes not. And so the figures would appear in, in a way that corresponded to the text sometimes and in a way that fought the text sometimes. So it really became her reaction um, to Fred. So the, and I think that's about it. <laughs> Thank you very much, Mary Louise. Um, next, uh, Anthony Holland, could you show us the visuals on the Kafka Hunger Artist as conceived and directed by Martha Clark? Anthony Holland um, appeared in the show, so um, it will be interesting to see uh, what you have to say since you didn't see it from out front. This is going to be fascinating. I know, I was very uh, surprised because there was so much uh, simultaneous movement going on. It, just to refresh you, The Hunger Artist was based on three stories of Franz Kafka, The Country Doctor, Metamorphosis, and The Hunger Artist, with works of his diaries then put in between, and uh, Letters to Felice. Uh, it was a very ambitious work. The floor, again, was soil. It was dirt. Of course, we coughed it up for weeks working in it. It was like, it was hard, really hard, that aspect of it. The costumes, in this, the set was, because I don't think it's, it's hard for you to see it, the set was a rather like an abandoned nursery with striped wallpaper, a hobby horse, and in this picture over here, there were really two Kafkas, Rob Bessera and myself, in identical costumes, which were beautifully done, uh, like circa 1912, and two women, one dancer, Polly Styron, Paola Styron, rather, and Brenda Curran. Brenda Curran over here, in the beginning of The Country Doctor, is beginning to tell me the story of The, the Country Doctor. I had no idea what was going on behind me, but that involved the rape of my servant girl by the groom. And all of this was simultaneously done with the most enchanting lighting that I have ever been bathed in, let's say. There's something about Paul Gallo's lighting and Robert Israel's sets, as though you may be, let's say, a middle-aged actor with a big nose and you're losing your hair, and at the same time you're involved in enchantment. I've never felt so protected 
and so loved by these two artists who won awards today. This is a scene shortly after the metamorphosis took place in which the other Kafka, I do the metamorphosis in it and I disintegrate into the insect. You don't see me in this picture, but here is Rob who is about to burst forth like, um, like his, uh, his id is bursting forth and he's beginning to frighten Brenda. There's the, this is a very good idea of the kind of the abandoned nursery. Uh, and of course, the lighting dealt in, in silhouettes and full lighting and up and down. And uh, I think you can see the dirt. There was a little sort of platform where the hobby horse was. That was hard wood. Um, I myself was, uh, I died three times in each performance. Uh, I had Italian friends, they would say, Tony, you die so much. And uh, you were actually buried in, in, in the dirt so that it was used. It wasn't. You know, well, dirt is used. It's when you see Mahabharata, of course. This is from the very beginning. That was a small door, like a child's door, a different scale. We also had a child in the show, like a third Kafka, the little Kafka who, of course, speaks out in Letter to My Father, a wonderful uh, little boy actor. And um, over here is a scene from the metamorphosis in which or the only prop I had was a, um, a gas mask uh, for uh, like an, uh, an insect's proboscis. And Brenda uh, Curran actually plays the sister. The metamorphosis was, was devised so that she um, tells her point of view and then I told my point of view. But the chair were kind of an Austrian 1900 fantasiacal chair in the dirt and uh, Later, we did, there was a tremendous amount in the set of use of the set, a tremendous amount of crawling, finding lost articles, the spilling of water into the set. Uh, it was really fully used, and uh, I think uh, I can say it was really a great honor to be in it. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much, Tony. And now I believe uh, the designer of fences, James Sandifer, has a, a treat for us uh, in the form of uh, a model as well as a photograph he's brought of, of his set. So, Well, uh, I don't know if everyone knows, but the show, Fences, was originally produced at the Yale Repertory Theater, uh, Lloyd Richards directing there. And so for all of us who started on the project there and came to New York with it through various stops in Chicago and Seattle, it's always kind of been really the starting point for the show. And even the designers who all worked on the show, we were third-year graduate students. Uh, and uh, the show was actually an assignment. I didn't have a choice, so uh, it kind of worked out well, though. And uh, hope the, you got uh, an A on it. <laughs> well, I'm here, I guess. <laughs> um, so the uh, the show went through several different phases. Originally, it was done on a thrust end stage, and that's what the show was or originally designed for. The model is of the second version of the set, which was suddenly put into a proscenium theater, which it wasn't originally intended for, so that posed some interesting problems. And uh, then this is a, I don't know if you can see this photograph, this is a photograph of the production that was done in Seattle, which looked just like the one here in New York, which is pretty incredible, because when we did it in Seattle, they fabricated the set from scratch. And uh, but the set you see on the stage of the 46th Street Theater is the original set from the Yale production, which cost us about $3,500 as opposed to a couple hundred thousand, which it would have cost here in New York. But, and the show is very realistic. And so we wanted to express as much realism and create an atmosphere apropos to the script as possible. And in the preface of the play, August, uh, wrote a description of what the neighborhood was like. And uh, I pretty much just stuck to that and wrote, uh, tried to express on stage what he wrote in words. 
And I feel like I was successful, and uh, he does too. And so I'm very pleased with myself and proud to be working on this production with him. Very much, James. And uh, finally, um, unfortunately, because of the extremely hectic schedules of Tom Cam and Robert Wilson getting off on their new shows, we don't have visuals of the uh, the trees from the Civil Wars. But uh, Paul King is going to try to describe it, the, the effect for us. <laughs> In 1986, uh, Harry Lichtenstein, who's the president and executive producer of BAM, asked me to go to uh, see the Rome section of the Civil Wars, which was being performed in Amsterdam uh, by the Netherlands Opera. And after spending uh, several days there watching the, the setup and breakdown and performances, uh, and understanding that they uh, they were uh, this production of the of the Netherlands Opera was a touring production going to three theaters throughout Holland. Uh, we understood that the greatest single challenge uh, to presenting this uh, this the opera in New York would be to ensure that the panorama trees uh, would move across the stage in the dramatic manner that they were originally intended. Uh, I don't have any uh, visuals to show you, but if we use our imagination for a moment, we might understand the scale of what we're, just, we're talking about here. Uh, there were two pieces of fabric. One, uh, they were both 30 feet high, for example. I'm sorry, 30 feet high each. One uh, would, if, if you imagine one stretching for, uh, from the corner of uh, 42nd and 5th to the corner of 44th and 5th in terms of its length. The other uh, uh, spanning from uh, 42nd and 5th to 45th uh, and 5th in length. Uh, these uh, pieces of fabric, all uh, one piece, basically the two different, uh, two different uh, panoramas, uh, had to move starting on cue and stopping on cue across the stage seemingly effortlessly. They, there couldn't be any, any movement uh, that didn't represent the magic of uh, the trees of the world starting from, uh, starting from all parts of the world, uh, uh, from New England to uh, the trees of Africa to the trees, the sculpted trees of Versailles. Uh, there could be no question in anyone's mind that these things were moving by magic across the stage. I mean, after all, you have characters on stage like uh, Earth Mother after the nuclear holocaust and Hercules and uh, a group of uh, gospel uh, singers that, uh, that, that it was only fitting in a, in a production requirement that these, that these uh, have the same weight as the characters that uh, were, were singing on stage. Uh, so we devised a system, an overhead tracking system, uh, which uh, accommodated the uh, over 800 feet of fabric um, and were driven by two pinch drive winches similar to uh, your, your basic Walkman and how it drives the tape through the, through the heads. Uh, and uh, with the aid of the professional backstage crew, uh, really made them, uh, made the trees uh, look beautiful uh, as they moved across. They moved from stage left to stage right. Uh, the real trick and the real problem was the storage uh, before the trees moved on stage and then the storage after the trees passed by the 30 foot, uh, the 40 foot opening. So we had overhead tracks which, which looked, uh, which looked as though uh, it was like a racetrack up above. I mean, they're just basically, if the proscenium arch was, was here, there was a track running all the way around backstage and back on again. It was a continuous track. And the two pinch drive motors pulled the top of the fabric through. It was gathered then off stage by the stagehands and uh, returned along its length of the track. Um, the, the other problem that we had was because of the uh, the very short amount of time that we had to, to prepare it uh, for a run in December of seven performances. We basically set the whole thing up in BAM in the Opera House uh, in September. Uh, 
So uh, there was, it was quite a bit of work to prepare to get the trees, the ex existing trees from the Netherlands Opera out of Amsterdam to New York and get them into Rosebrand and have them all sewn together uh, and replacing panels of scrim, uh, get them into BAM for a September uh, load in and actual teching uh, of, the, of the entire show, including lights uh, and stand-ins for some of the singers who were not available. And then we put the whole thing to bed for a couple of months and brought it back in December about a week and a half uh, before it opened. Uh, we put the whole thing back together in December, ran it for seven performances, and I think uh, then basically put it to bed for a final time. And uh, so that's basically the system behind the, uh, the trees that I think beautifully came out beautifully. Thank you. What an Thankful. extraordinary opportunity to learn so much about what makes the magic of theater by listening to this discussion. We're going to take a break now and then we're going to come back and there'll be questions that I'm sure people in the audience will want to ask and the panelists themselves. And it, it, it's bound to bring forth more of the same kind of knowledge. I'm indeed pleased to be able to have the American Theater Wing part of this wonderful seminar on set design. Don't go far away because we're going to be right back. Thank you.
I'm Isabel Stevenson, and I'm president of the American Theatre Wing, and I want to welcome you to the American Theatre Wing's seminars on working in the theatre. This seminar is devoted to the set design, the magic that makes the whole play come to life, the costumes, the set, the lighting, and the special effects. And we are now going to discuss what it takes to do that. Well, the talented group of people that we have here have all taken part in making that come alive. And Professor T Tish Dates and Henry Hughes and Jean Dalrymple will all try and draw out as much information from them as possible. <laughs> thank you for being here. And thank you, Mrs. Stevenson. I'd like again to take this opportunity to thank you and the Board of Directors of the American Theatre Wing for sponsoring and funding these awards, which are very important to the recognition of outstanding achievement in, in all aspects of stage design. We were just hearing from uh, Paul King about the extraordinary procession of trees uh, that, that goes on for many minutes across the stage at the Brooklyn Academy of Music in the fifth act of uh, Robert Wilson's The Civil Wars. Uh, those trees included evergreens, uh, the sort of trees we see in North America, tropical forests, rainforests, cactus, I mean, every kind of tree you can imagine. It was sort of overwhelming sitting there and, and wondering how much longer they could possibly go on, what kind of trees they'd left out, but then they, eventually they didn't leave out anything. And I was wondering, Paul, Robert Wilson is a director and a playwright as well as a designer. Uh, he's been working in the theater for a long, long time. In fact, he won a Maharam Award uh, back in 1975. Uh, does that mean that he comes into a production knowing exactly what he wants, uh, or does he work quite collaboratively, and does the effect, working with Tom Cam in this case, evolve gradually over a period of time? Well, there are two. Uh, Mr. Wilson works in, in two fashions. One is uh, by uh, by careful uh, workshopping of a particular production uh, in in an environment which can support his uh, support the the collaboration of of uh, him and his designers uh, as well as performers in in almost an unstructured inquiry into a concept that he has. Uh, it, 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 it takes many months of that uh, to uh, to develop a work to the point where he's ready to uh, then put designs, make concrete uh, scenic elements and and develop the piece uh, so that it's uh, it can then be presented on the world stages and he works extensively in Europe uh, as well as in the United States. So it, it is a very long process for him when he has that kind of resource. That's the way he likes to develop it. How much does something like that cost to do? Well, I mean, if you, the trees, uh, the trees, the development of the trees at the Brooklyn Academy of Music cost about sixty thousand dollars, which included the uh, the remake of the fabrics. Uh, in other words, in Amsterdam, what we received from them were about fifteen different panels, which were used very differently in Amsterdam because it was a touring production. So each of the panels had to be uh, sewn together onto, and, and in some cases, the trees removed from the panels and then reapplied to continuous scrims uh, where we had to carefully design in the seams between the scrims. Do you uh, have your own shop there, or do you have to? No, no, no. We, have, we do not. We have to uh, job everything out. Because I, I know that you were, uh, one of the other designers was saying that they, uh, I think it was Jim, that the, the set that cost $3,500 in Yale, exactly the same set on the stage at the 46th Street, cost 200000 mm -hmm. And uh, I keep uh, asking uh, why uh, the, the, there should be such a tremendous markup uh, uh, for the, uh, when, these, when these shows move beyond the, the actual price of the, of the fabric and the workmanship. Well, in the case, before, before uh, you speak about uh, your show, in the case of the trees, there was much work that had to be done to them in order to, to, for them to be applied to a track, continuous track. So besides the track and the mechanization itself, 
uh, the fabric had to be reworked. The trees had to literally stripped off of the old fabric and applied to new fabric. Plus, you're ta just talking, it was done to shark's tooth scrim so that the, so that the lighting was able to illuminate uh, action behind the scrim uh, in this, at the same time as the trees were moving. So you know, the, the fabric, the, the, tracking the tracking itself, and the mechanization which pulled it across make it that much expense, that can creates that kind of expense. What, what kind of a track did you use? Well, it's in the trade, it's, uh, it's a uh, patriarch track. It's an aluminum extrusion track, which is bendable. Uh, there, are, there are very heavy tracks which are not bendable. So mm -hmm. th these, these particular tracks were bendable to create the, 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 the loop, so to yeah. speak. So yeah. <laughs> I was very lightweight because the trees themselves were not that very heavy, so I didn't have to have a very uh, strong track. But and they built it in a shop, not on the stage? Well, the, the, uh, the, we actually, the stagehands at BAM, bent the track and installed it into place. The mechanization, the, the, the pinch drives that I referred to before were, were built in, in a uh, mechanization shop, and the fabric was, was reworked at a couple of different shops. So they, and, and, and you have to go to the people that have the specialty to, create the, to help you create the effect. So that's one of the re also one of the reasons why the cost goes up. How, how much was Starlight Express? Uh I knew you'd ask me that. <laughs> well, uh, it was certainly much more expensive to do it here in New York than, than it was in London uh, for a number of reasons. I mean, the answer that always comes up is, is uh, the union factors in, in doing things in New York on Broadway. But I know that John appreciates very much the opportunity to work in New York because the the craftsmanship and the, ca the technological capability is so great here in this country and uh, in, at Parsons Mears, which is the costume shop that uh, built the clothes for Starlight, we were able to m spend many months just um, doing prototypes of the costumes, uh, trying out new materials, uh, you know, foams and stretch fabrics and uh, painting techniques so that we could come up with a costume that uh, could withstand a long run, was breathable and easy for the skaters to work in, and still had a greater ultimate image of a train car. In other words, the surface texture and the, the, the glitziness or the mechanical quality of the clothes came across much more strongly in, uh, in the New York production. And as far as cost is concerned, I mean, it's many thousands of dollars. Uh, but they're also built to last an incredible well, I'm talking about the costumes, the but, costumes. I'm, but I'm thinking of that fantastic set with the, with the mechanical... Well, I'm here to answer set. for the costumes. <laughs> 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 I don't know how much the set cost. Well, it was, you know, as we know, several yeah. million dollars. Really? Yeah. But, but, I mean, we're talking about engineering and bridge work, the kind of thing that has never been seen on Broadway before. And, you know, I mentioned when I was talking about the clothes, a kind of uh, fantasy Disneyland image, it's the same thing if you were to go, uh, go to an amusement park and go to the Space Mountain ride or, or one, of those, one of those incredibly constructed futuristic kinds of things. It's more of an installation, you know, it, it really is a fantastical kind of, uh, of creation that has to uh, move and transform itself through, uh, through many different stages. And also, the, you know, the lighting was built into the set. You know, the floor lit up. We had bridges uh, moving <coughs> in incredible uh, different uh, forms. I mean, the set really danced in of itself, you know. The insurance premiums would probably pay for the another whole show. <laughs> Well, you know, we there was a lot of worry early on about the the safety of the uh, of the actors, and John was incredibly <coughs> conscious of that. And I think uh, ultimately that does make things more expensive. But I, I think that we all felt better for the fact that there were no chances taken in terms of of the safety of those people performing. Well, what happens what happens when ten skaters are approaching a bridge and the bridge hasn't come up? Well, there, there were safety mechanisms built in. In other words, there are gates that uh, uh, were run by computer. In other words, 
the gate to allow the skaters to proceed down the ramps or across yeah. the bridges would not open unless the bridge was locked into place. And there are um, stage managers spaced strategically around the set uh, looking like little, you know, railroad car workers themselves. We had to costume them and uh, <laughs> make them look like they fit right in. But they're there to check everything safety-wise before people uh, proceed. When so. you were uh, explaining the characters, uh, you left out Greaseball, didn't you? Oh, she showed us Greaseball. No, I did. The one that I left out was Papa, who is, yeah, uh, he is uh, uh, the old uh, steam engine, kind of the spiritual yeah. inspiration right. for, for Rusty. Um, that sketch just happens to be very uh, difficult to read uh, mm -hmm. on camera. It's very dark because he's a very, you know, he's an old, uh, rusted, right. dusty yeah. coal car. <laughs> so it's not as flashy to show that on, on camera. But, uh, you know, the, the three, as I said, the three main characteristics are the, uh, uh, the coal car, which would, is Rusty, who runs on steam, and the electric car, which sort of sleek and cold mm -hmm. and, you know, very uh, uh, sort of high-tech kind of surface, and then Greaseball, who is sort of a uh, you know an Elvis Presley type of macho. <laughs> Very uh, much so. Yes, yes. He, he wore my favorite costume. <laughs> yes. Well, it's it's. I, I think when when we finally put all the component parts to that costume together, it was pretty spectacular. Yeah. Uh, we had him skate through the through the workroom to show everybody what it all looked like. Because that's the thing about this type of uh, costuming is it takes so many different uh, layers and components and so much input from so many different kinds of craftsmen that you sort of. It's a pretty exciting moment when it all comes together yes. in the fitting room for the first mm -hmm. time. Right. Yes. Well, I know as a little directing I've done that the the worst day of rehearsals is when the actors first see the costumes. Yeah. They first put them on. They are always they're, it can be it's, the it's always a tremendous shock. They they eventually grow to like them. But yes, yes and in this show, I wonder if sometimes they found them a bit cumbersome to skate in just sure. at first yeah. when yeah. they got yeah. them on. Well, we tried as early in the rehearsal process as possible to give them a. Uh, uh, a prototype or something that would be similar to what they were working, uh, going to ultimately be working in, uh, you know, special knee pads and, uh, uh, you know, uh, breast uh, plates and padding and that sort of thing. But a, a key problem were the, the engine helmets that they had to wear, which were these very, very large um, uh, kydex, which is a, is a type of lightweight plastic. Uh, these helmets were difficult to see out of. So there were some uh, uh, alterations that had to be made in terms of uh, sight line and vision and that sort of thing. But the actors, they knew what was coming. You know, we did an extensive uh, design presentation at the beginning of rehearsal, and uh, there was a lot of excitement. And they worked quite easily in them and adapted very quickly. Jim Sandifer, what uh, what sort of problems did you face trying to create such a a very very realistic set with real dirt and a tree that sure looked real? Was that tree alive? It was at one time. <laughs> <laughs> it's not. It was. How did you keep it looking alive on stage? Well, it really doesn't look alive. It really looks dead. Anymore. And that's kind of. We. It was always intended that the. The trees or whatever was there of nature was very dead, and that this is a very kind of the pit of the of the of Pittsburgh, where uh, nature doesn't really exist, and it's a bunch of dirty old houses and kind of lives that are kind of set slowly falling down too, and so nature was kind of preceding the fall of their lives, and uh, the tree actually. When we were at Yale, we did the, uh, the first production. It was no problem. We said, we need a tree. Fine. We go to the production manager's uh, farm and cut down a tree and drag it and put it up. <laughs> and uh, we took that tree to Chicago, and it was fine. And uh, it came time to do the, the Broadway production. It was, well, what are we going to do about the tree? And we had a shop build a tree, and it looked kind of like a cross between Gumby and a reindeer. <laughs> and it was just dreadful. <laughs> and uh, the first time the producer walked in, she kind of shook her head. I'm going, yes, please replace the tree. They all got used to it, you know, because once you look at the tree for a couple of days, you don't, you don't look at it anymore. You look at the actors. And 
<laughs> so they, they forgot how bad it looked until it finally took James Earl Jones to go, I can't act in front of this tree. <laughs> and, uh, uh, I got down and kissed his ring like a pope and said thank you. And so after the rest of the set was already installed, we added the real tree here in New York, which was a major expense. It, it after. Molded or gotten brittle and had to be replaced. Well, it was pretty well that. dead when we cut it down. Yes. We hired a little woodsman and he went up and <laughs> took a couple pictures and took his axe and cut it down and we brought it down in several pieces and installed it, uh, carrying it through the house and cabling it up. And it was a major job, but it was worth it. It really makes the, yeah. all the difference in that set. And you did know. that cost as much as your original set? You hated it. Cost it cost about three times as much as the original. <laughs> the, just to put the tree in, uh, the last couple of days before opening, cost as much as doing the original set three times. Where yeah. does three the times, money go? $10,000. Um, Those mostly labor costs? Mostly it was labor. Yeah. It didn't cost much to get the man to cut the tree down and to bring it down to New York. <laughs> it, was, uh, it was a Monday, which everyone knows is a big labor day for the unions. And it took a crew of about nine men to carry it through the house and to hold it up and and it was uh, and plus they're trying to cable this thing up okay Jim where do you want the branch and I'm going oh I don't ask me this is costing too much money <laughs> and, uh, but it, it eventually worked out but you know the set really didn't cost two hundred thousand it would have if they had started completely from scratch here in New York so but it only cost us about eighty thousand to dust it off and restructure it and put it up did, was, uh, do you get many complaints about people in the front rows choking on the dust from the, well, from yeah. the soil of the yard? This is set in the backyard. We used to get more complaints when they actually sat in the first row of the theater. We've roped off the first row now, <laughs> so they, they can't get dirt thrown onto their nice white outfits anymore. <laughs> and, uh, uh, it, uh, it's, it was a problem, but uh, everyone on the production decided it was worth having the real dirt and the look of uh, you know, every time you take a footstep, having a little cloud go poof. <laughs> you know, when you take a step, it was worth the complaints we were getting. And uh, I guess anyone who goes to see the show, don't sit in the first row on house left. <laughs> so it's a warning. It's especially a problem in the, at the end of the show. There's a fight scene between James Earl Jones and Courtney Vance. And uh, he throws Courtney down on the ground, which is when all the damage always happens. The, uh, the dirt kind of flies over the edge of the stage. And, uh, we've kind of cut down on the dirt, though, so it... Uh, we have three shows here that have real dirt in them, plus a fourth person here who's just working on another show with the dirt. So, I mean, I, I really feel compelled to ask how much dirt there is in each show and how you lug that in, how much it costs and so forth. But would you, how, is there very much actual dirt no, on the stage or it's just a little bit for effect? There's a, a ground cloth painted brown with about quarter of an inch of dirt veneer on it. So they just kind of yeah. sweep it around and spray it every once in a while. Tony, how many tons of earth Well, it was tons. It's, um, it, it was a two. They had to build a platform to encase the dirt, and then they got an engineer to find out how much the floor of St. Clement's Church could hold. Mm -hmm. it, we had really enormous amounts of dirt. And then the dirt is watered down uh, so that it doesn't create too much dust that mm -hmm. you know and in our case it had to be enough yeah. dirt to create a shallow grave uh, I was always and afraid to dig onions and or something well, like we dug onions <laughs> and China and uh, yes uh, various things are unearthed Un unearthed <laughs> like this subconscious oh, oh bam you you have uh, Mahabharata which is how many tons mm, I don't know how many tons it is but it's uh, it's uh, about 40 cubic yards uh, of of uh, earth and of a special, very special clay mixture, which was brought in in cement trucks, uh, which had to be mixed with straw and iron oxide to give it a color. And there's about four inches of it uh, and over the entire deck. And when we poured it like cement uh, in two days, and then it took uh, four weeks for it to dry. So it was, it sat there with nobody walking on it for for about for a month so that it would set up. Mary Louise, when John Arnone did the set for Worst Word Ho that you and Jennifer lit, do you know how much uh, dirt was involved in the grave? The, um, Fred Newman comes out of the grave, literally, 
shortly after the beginning of the show, you don't actually see anybody at the very beginning, you just hear his voice, and he's throwing dirt out with a shovel, and there's a skeleton embedded in dirt. Do you know how much uh, there was involved in well, that? Well, Mapper Minds is not a rich organization, so <laughs> it is not Small tons budget. of dirt. And also, it was about a 30-degree platform, that triangle. Mm -hmm. It's a huge triangle, and it's about a rake like this. So if there's too much dirt on it, it all slides down. Right. And I believe it was painted brown, and we probably had... It was those big packages of peat moss and mm -hmm. some potting soil mm -hmm. that we bought at the hardware store. So it was not as much. But they'd have a bucket of dirt in the grave that a stage manager would throw out for Fred. <laughs> because there wasn't enough room. Are you giving away? <laughs> oh, it's close. Because <laughs> <laughs> there wasn't enough room in the grave for Fred to be doing all of it, and they had to conserve on dirt. <laughs> Does anyone have a recipe on how to do dirt on stage without getting clouds of dust? Mm -hmm. well, the the is there's no dust because it's, because it's the hard-packed clay, and it's, wa it's watered down every evening before the show starts, so it's, that's pretty much how you do it. We might be you don't have a month to let it dry, yeah. you know, it's a problem. We wanted the dust, so. We yeah. wet it down every night, twice a night, but it's, Still not enough. Mm -hmm. We're going to have to rename this reward the Dirty Theater Award. <laughs> <laughs> Only theater artists who can deal in soil are eligible. An interesting point. Uh, I wonder what's going to happen to that huge uh, 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 piece of cloth with the trees on it. Uh, is there somewhere where that can be stored easily? It's back. It's, oh, it's actually the production is owned by the Netherlands Opera. So the they, whole thing went back intact. Um, for for them to use if they were to use the same tracking system. So they it's now in a warehouse in Amsterdam. We've actually had a, an audience uh, member send up a question on what happens to designs in general. Um, I, I guess we would have to apply this particularly to to scene design and costume design awards. When, when a show closes, um, uh, if there's of course, some of you do tour later on, but eventually when the touring seems to be done and the show is over, uh, are the designs thrown out? Are they donated to museums? What happens to them? Tony? May I say that our, our set and costumes burned down this summer in, an, in a warehouse fire, along with, again, the two winners, Robert Israel and uh, uh, the Lusthaus, Vienna Lusthaus, was destroyed too. So we have two. It really is a tragedy. And, I suppose music theater is trying to raise the money because these works will tour. And that's really a tragedy, so that you saw everything. Uh, it's a, it, that's it. Sometimes I think they are given to museums, it seemed to me. You can always find Diaghilev and, uh, from the Russian ballet. They, they make their way to, to museums. Oh, oh, the, the designs, or oh, the museum of the city of New York, the, you know, the air conditioning. I've been here all day. Mm -hmm. <laughs> taken all my voice away. <clears throat> the theater collection is very eager to get original designs. You mean the set <clears throat> itself or the, or the sketches? No, the designs. The sketches? Yes. But the uh, designs? Sets, the sets themselves they destroy almost they always. In a, in a dump. Where was it? <laughs> Kane's Warehouse they used to call it? Yes, Kane's Warehouse. Is there a Kane's Warehouse anymore? I don't think so, no. You know, no, that you used to be, they used to keep it because there was so, so much stock being done in the old days, you know, and uh, people, when they finished with the production, would put it in Kane's war, warehouse. And then uh, I used to, of course, when a musical closed, I would ask if I could have the set and I would tell the producer I would pay to take it out, which was a great saving yeah. to him. And I'd put it in our storehouse so I would have it when I revived That's the city it. center. Yes. The city center had its own storehouse. Then. Yes. Mm -hmm. And we only paid $600 a month. And uh, I had uh, designs for 18 musicals and 14 plays. And the board of directors decided that $600 a month was too much and they burned them all up. <laughs> <laughs> Is that likely to happen to the set for Fences and the costumes for Starlight Express, or will they be preserved somewhere? Well, in a, in a commercial production, um, the costumes and the scenery is the property of, of the producers, and they can decide uh, really the fate of whether they want to hold on to the costumes frequently. <coughs> they're used for a touring production, and then maybe ultimately find their way into a rental house like Eves Brooks. Uh, mm -hmm. Uh, costume rental. Sometimes it's simply 
uh, cost less to destroy a set than, yes. than yeah. to store it? it I know Jim could yeah. answer Well, the, that, the set for Fences was stored in Chicago for a year after its production there uh, because they thought it might go somewhere. But <laughs> they never, I mean, they just kind of left it at the Goodman Theater in their shop warehouse. I'm sorry I have to interrupt this. And once more, it's the end of an American Theater Wing seminar on working in the theater, which is coming to you from the Graduate Center at the City University of New York. This is one of the series of what it is to work in the theater. We've brought you the performance and the playwright-director relationship and the production, and today these talented people of the design and set. This, uh, these people are the ones that make the whole thing come together. The lighting, the sets, and the costume bring all the magic to you. And this is but one program of the year-round that the American Theatre Wing gives to the community. We are the oldest organization that services the community through the theater. And our year-round programs include a hospital program bringing live professional theater into hospitals, the Saturday Theater for Children program, which brings schools live, wonderful, wonderful theater in their schools on Saturday morning, and these seminars, perhaps one of the most practical of all of the programs that the wing can bring to you. Thank you very much for being here. And let me add one more thing. The Wing is a charity organization and we need volunteers. We need anybody that can come to our office and help either type or book or whatever it is that needs to be done in the theater. So, and from the theater into the office. So thank you very much for being here and I hope that I will see you in our next seminar. Thank you.